Good morning, Southside. You thought that was me singing when I walked up here, didn't you? No, you'd be solely disappointed if that was true. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about John Newton, who wrote that line uh, that you just heard. John Newton, if you haven't been with us, was a sea captain in the 1700s. Uh, He was a pagan. He did not believe in God, and he did not value human beings. He also traded slaves. But in a life-threatening storm and through a series of events, he came to know God and His grace. Uh, After he began uh, a little bit of a life of faith, he then left his role as a uh, ship captain, left the slave trade and his life at sea. He went back to England where he arrived in 1754, a 29-year-old man. He never sailed for a living again. He instead began to invest his time in the church. Uh, He began to shadow a preacher there named George Whitfield, and they would go out to dinner together. They would uh, he would talk to him about ministry. He, uh, they, he would get up at 5 o'clock in the morning on bitterly cold winter days to go meet with George. He did this for a number of years. He hungered for spiritual companionship. He hungered for knowledge. He began to teach himself biblical languages, Hebrew and Greek. He read theology. And after about seven years of this relationship, he became a pastor at a church in England. He was known for his emotional manner in the pulpit. He poured out his life and all these stories that he had about God's grace, of course. And he really invested in the youth of this really small 3,000-person community called uh, Alney, Buckinghamshire. And during that time, Newton also began to write songs. He'd write songs for the church to sing or for the youth to learn. And in 1779, with the help of a poet friend, he published Alney Hymns, his hymnal, And that collection included a little hymn called Amazing Grace. You ever heard of it? No. During his time, for the rest of his life, he served Jesus in London until he died in 1807, Uh, became well-known and was very influential in the lives of many prominent pastors in that region, and even in the life of a man who became a slave abolitionist named William Wilberforce. He really helped him, and by the end of his life, Newton was... Widely beloved in England and beyond. Wasn't always that way. Through all the years of his ministry and, and even the fame that came, Newton never forgot where he came from. In fact, over the fireplace in his study where he would write sermons or even, even songs, he had a plaque. And on that plaque, he had Deuteronomy 15, 15 in large letters. It says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. He never forgot. And when he died, John Newton left behind an epitaph on his gravestone that remains even to this day. A little hard to read from this angle, but it says, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. And it got me thinking, what do you think would be the epitaph of grace in your life. You know, over the last few weeks, we've been talking about this amazing gift of God's grace to us. We've talked about it like a sea voyage, you know, life at sea has been the name of our series. We've talked about how every single person, regardless of where you come from, we all enter the boat of God's grace through common grace, God's kindness. And then when we get stuck in sin, God rescues us through saving grace. We even talked last week about how we all have the opportunity now to help guide other people like a compass with transforming grace. But before we leave this idea of God's grace, we cannot 
leave without talking about the final port. Where does this story of grace in our lives conclude? What's the final destination look like? Like John Newton's life, uh, Peter, in his first letter, 1 Peter, sprinkled the vision of the final destination of grace over every single chapter. Each chapter makes mention of it. 1 Peter 1, he begins with a blessing, grace, and peace be yours in abundance. And then a few later uh, verses later, he says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. There's more grace coming? Yes. And then chapter 2, he talks to the slaves of the congregation that were followers of Jesus. And he says to them, it is commendable, literally it is, it finds grace if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. In chapter three, he focuses grace on husbands because husbands, we need a lot of grace. He tells them to treat their wives with respect as heirs with you of the gracious gift of God so nothing will hinder your prayers. Chapter 4, he continues, he spreads grace now to the whole Christian community. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And then we come to chapter 5, the last chapter, some of his last words that paints for us a picture of kind of the final port, the final destination of where grace is taking us. And I want to look particularly at verses 10 and 11. He says, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. You see, this God who invites us by his grace, who rescues us by his grace, who guides our lives by his grace, also will shower us with grace forever and ever. The term we use is eternal grace. This is what you look like if grace does its work in your life. This is the final port of this sea voyage. So let's look at it together. First of all, he says you'll be restored. He says, in the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you suffered a little while, will himself restore you. That little term restores from the Greek word katartizo. It means to, to, to make something, uh, to make it sufficient, to make something or someone sufficient. It was used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe fishermen mending their nets. They get torn or broken or ripped. They would, they would katartizo them. They would sew them back together. They would make them sufficient. It was also used in wider Greek culture of boats that have been damaged in storms or damaged in battle, and they would, they would katartizo them, they would restore them, they would build them back. It, it means to craft something as suitable once again. I wonder maybe if some of your lives couldn't use some restoration. Maybe been beat up, torn up by sin, wounded, got you scratching your head and even wondering what in the world could possibly be next. Ignaz Simmelweis needed some restoring. You may guess by his name. comes from Europe. You may not know, he was in the mid-1800s, was a doctor uh, delivering babies at Vienna General Hospital. Now, Vienna Hospital was a widely known research and teaching hospital of the area, and Dr. Simmelweis was trying to research uh, his way to the bottom of a very big problem. You see, in his maternity ward where he was delivering babies, uh, they had a, a mortality rate 
of one in ten women giving birth. Can you imagine that? One out of every ten mothers coming in to give birth were dying. It was tearing him up. Other, other maternity wards in his same hospital were much better, but his, one in ten. So they tried to look through all the symptoms. They, they called the symptoms associated with these deaths childbed fever. And they tried to, in those days, conventional medicine said you had to treat every single symptom. So if a woman came in with inflammation, for instance, they believed that she had excess blood. And so they would bleed her with leeches, you know. Or if she had trouble breathing, they tried to uh, figure out that the, the air must be bad. So they worked on ventilation. But no matter what they tried, these women kept dying. And the risk was, was so well known, Vienna General had a, a, a reputation that went throughout the community so poorly were they thought of that women would go and give birth in the streets before then going into the hospital after they gave birth. Patients were frequently seen, quote, kneeling and wringing their hands, begging to be moved to another maternity ward where at least the mortality rate was, it was still horrific, one out of every 50 women, but it wasn't as bad as Dr. Semmelweis's one in 10. He needed some restoring. His medical practice needed some mending. I guess some of us could use some of that too. Because Peter reminds us that if we're trying to live graciously in a merciless world, It can kind of tear at us. He said it even in this statement. He said, after you've suffered a little while, maybe you're experiencing some of that suffering. Maybe this week you've been ostracized, you've been rejected, you've been pushed aside. Maybe in your life, instead of making the big bucks, you are making a smaller salary because your desire is to serve Jesus in the lives of people instead of serving mammon. Maybe for you, you've been financially helping someone, your neighbor, your child, an ailing parent, which means you don't get a vacation this year, maybe not next year, maybe not ever. John Newton knew about that kind of suffering too. When God's grace began to anchor in his life, he he could no longer take part in the slave trade, which was very lucrative, made a lot of money. In fact, in 1788, Newton began to fight the practice of slavery in his country and received a huge amount of criticism. English Parliament was studying this, and the Prime Minister, William Pitt, ordered a committee to investigate the slave trade, and they needed somebody to tell them about it, and the only person on the inside of the slave trade who was willing to talk to the government about it and its atrocities was John Newton. And so all these wealthy slave traders, all these former ship captains that Newton used to sail with, his former colleagues, his former friends, they all hated him. There is suffering in this sea voyage of grace. Before the final docking of our ship, you will experience suffering. Peter says it over and over in his book. He begins it in 1 Peter 1 by saying this. In all this, he says, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Grace, for all of its appeal in our lives, cannot carry us into eternity without some suffering. Maybe you're experiencing some this Labor Day weekend, some conflict in relationships, some friend who has stabbed you in the back, some child who has not done what you've asked them to do and who's made some serious mistakes. You've got the tears and the breaks to prove it. But Peter says, hold on. 
hold on, just over the next wave, at the, at the final dock of our journey with God, God will restore you. He'll put you back together. He will, as Hebrews 13 says, equip you with everything good for doing His will. Katertizo, he will, he will mend you back as He intends you to be. Uh, Brennan Manning put it this way. He said, on the last day, Jesus will look us over not for medals, diplomas, or honors, but for scars. And in His grace, He'll mend us. He'll restore us. At Grace's final port, you'll be restored. You'll also, he says, be strengthened. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong. This little word for strong means to to enable someone to become stronger by encouraging them. It was the same challenge of Jesus to Peter when he predicted his betrayal in Luke 22. He said, I've prayed for you, Simon, that your soul may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers, encourage them, rally them back to faith and to strength in God. Or the same word used in Acts 14, Paul had been nearly murdered on a missionary trip there. And yet when he and Barnabas recovered, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith, with an iron will forged in the grace of God, these men spurred brothers and sisters in the faith to strength. Could you use a little strength? This Labor Day weekend, are you tired? Are you exhausted? You find yourself weak in the knees? Maybe you just don't think you could do it anymore. That was Dr. Simmelweis. He felt that way. He couldn't figure out why these women were dying in his maternity ward. He he tried to see the differences between his ward and other wards, and all he could find was that his uh, ward had more and more doctors, and the other wards had midwives. Couldn't figure out why that would explain the difference. So he equalized across the hospital. Every ward, every mother had the same experience. They all had the same diet. They all had the same ventilation. They all gave birth with the same birthing positions. They even did the laundry, all the exact same, and nothing changed. These women kept dying. He couldn't figure it out. But then finally, he traveled to another hospital. For about four months, he was away. And during that four months, the mortality rate in his maternity ward went way, way down. And this really bothered him. He came back and he dug into it again, and, and finally he began to think it must have something to do with the fact that his doctors in his ward, because it's a research and teaching hospital, they were spending a lot of time researching cadavers, and then they would go in and they would treat these live patients. And he came up with a theory of childbed fever. He concluded that he thought there must be particles, that was his word, coming from these cadavers and somehow making their way to the healthy patients on the hands of the doctors. And so he immediately made all of the physicians wash their hands thoroughly in a chlorine and lime solution before examining any live patients. And do you know what happened? Of course you do. The mortality rate immediately fell. It went from 1 in 10 women dying to 1 in 100 almost overnight. See, Dr. Simmelweis discovered germs. And the doctors were carrying them to their patients. Simmelweis once sadly remarked, only God knows the number of patients who went prematurely to their graves because of me. Can you imagine that? 
And yet, because of his relentless pursuit of the truth, he found the strength to save countless generations of us who have ever fought a germ. You know, wouldn't it be nice to discover some strength that could turn our mistakes into life for others? Peter says, God will do that. He will submit you in His grace. After the knockdown, drag out rampages of life, after the, the stress and the shocking heartbreak, He will make you strong. No matter how wobbly need your faith feels right now, no matter how many times you've carried your sin into the lives of other people, this God will strengthen you again. He says, just around the corner, at the final destination in the eternal glory in Christ. He will. Plus, when grace does its work, He says you'll find You'll also be firm. The God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will Himself restore you and make you strong and firm. This is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. It means to uh, cause someone to become more able or more capable. Can Can you imagine a life not full of anxiety or insecurity, but instead a God who makes you firm in His grace, capable of loving Him and loving one another? Never again will we struggle with unforgiveness or selfishness or stinginess. Uh, Not at the final port. God in His grace will make us firm, and we can live this day as if that were true because God is doing it now as well. Just like John Newton discovered, as he matured in his faith, his rule of life went something like this. He said, I make it a rule of Christian duty never to go to a place where there's not room for my master as well as for myself. Could you use some of that firmness in your life? Could you use God's grace to be capable, to be His man, His woman in this time, in your workplace, in your school, in your life? Have you made room for Him everywhere you go? Every relationship you have, every website you visit, every friendship, every TV show you watch? At the final port, God's grace will offer us that firmness in abundance. And then finally, he mentions that we will be steadfast, that God will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. This word means to provide a foundation, to be established. This is not a faith that's here today and gone tomorrow. This is not a faith that worships on Sunday and melts down on Monday. This is not the kind of faith where you you pray and have such peace with your kids when you put them to bed at night, and then in the morning you wake them up by screaming at them to hurry up and get ready for school. This is an established, solid foundation, and God's grace will develop with that within us for, for life ever after. John Newton learned this as well as he got older and matured. His, his friend and fellow minister, Richard Cecil, shared some of his thoughts, and one of the things he said was, whatever I may doubt on other points, I cannot doubt that, uh, whether there has been a certain gracious transaction between God and my soul. No doubts, firm foundation. God made him steadfast, even with all of his sin in his background. And he'll do the same for us. You see, Peter, he got to look into the eyes of his Savior. And when he looked into the eyes of Jesus, he saw life forever after. 
No wonder he turned to praise after writing this in 1 Peter 5. He says, To him be the power forever and ever. Peter longed for the day when God would bring to the earth his kingdom, when God would make all things right, when God would bring his peace instead of the struggle that we face even now, even if it feels like a short time or even a long time. He longed for that day. Do you long for it? In the meantime, here Peter's compelling and competing uh, including words in 1 Peter 5. He says, With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Church, stand fast in God's grace. And on the final day, He'll shower you with more. Near the end of his life, John Newton said this, When I get to heaven, I shall see three wonders there. The first wonder will be to see many people there whom I did not expect to see. The second wonder will be to miss many people whom I did expect to see. And the third and greatest wonder of all will be to find myself there. This is God's grace. Stand fast until the day we enter that final port. And God whisks us into eternity with some electric words that I hope every one of us hears. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Today we want to conclude our prayer practice throughout this series called Visio Divina. In it, we take a few moments to reflect quietly together on the things we've heard, the scriptures we've talked about, and on an image that we'll put on the screen in just a moment. So I'm going to pray and give you a few moments to think through, to look at the image, and to reflect on God's voice in your life. Maybe as you see the image, you're drawn to something specific. Maybe you place yourself in the image and and you think about what you would see and hear and experience there. But ask yourself, is there something God is communicating to me in this moment, something I need to pray or confess or thank God for or some action in my life. Take a few moments and pray as we do this together. Let me pray with you to kick off our time in the words of Ted Loder. Father God, wondrous worker of wonders, we praise you not alone for what has been or for what is, but for what is yet to be. For you are gracious beyond all telling of it. We praise you, God, that out of the turbulence of our lives, a kingdom is coming, is being shaped even now out of our slivers of loving, our bits of trusting, our sprigs of hoping, that somehow out of our songs and struggles, out of our griefs and triumphs, we are gathered up and saved. For you, God, are gracious beyond all telling of it. We praise you, God, that you turn us loose to go with you to the edge of now and maybe to welcome the new, to see our possibilities, to accept our limits, and yet begin living to the limit of passion and compassion until, released by joy, we uncurl to other people and to your kingdom coming. For you, God, are gracious beyond all telling of it. Father, you are most gracious to us, especially in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
This morning we pray in His name and by Your Spirit together. Speak to us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name.